This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Table Sense. Justified Cat Merch. Lowy Fuller. And Houdini's Greatest Escape. You've perfected the dosi dough. You've mastered the mashed potato. You know your dance crew is the hottest around, but now it's time to prove it. Breakdancing Meeples is a real-time dexterity game of, you guessed it, Breakdancing Meeples. Designed by Ben Moy and published by our friends at Atlas Games. To play, roll your Meeple dance crew as fast as you can, over and over. Lock in useful rolls and re-roll the rest to complete dance routines and score points. After four one-minute dance rounds, the crew with the most crowd appeal wins the trophy. Breakdancing Meeple comes in a metal tin that's nearly as indestructible as your high school boombox. It plays two to four people, ages six and up, in five minutes. Find Breakdancing Meeple's at your friendly local game store or at atlas-games.com backslash breakdancing. Because when beats bump, Meeple's gotta dance. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here in the gaming hut, what do we got? We got, well, we got Frampton Comes Alive double gatefold album. Uh, we got some dice. We got some graph paper, maybe some pencils, Doritos, obviously. What are they all resting on, Robin? I have a sense of what it is. <laughs> so it's a flat plane, but it also, it has a, a solidity. There's legs under it. What do you call those things, Robin? What are those I things? I think sometimes they're virtual. Sometimes, sometimes they're virtual. Everybody has their own little one in front of them. Sometimes there's a single one. Mm-hmm. It's the table, Ken. Right. We're talking about the it table. It is the table. But we're not, not, not talking just about tables, not just about no. gaming furniture. This is not the Because we're not hut. being sponsored by one of those uh, companies that makes the, the high-end gaming tables. The, the fine, high-quality gaming tables created by companies whose name could be here. Except they were asleep at the wheel. Right. They didn't jump in and get those uh, long-term ad bookings. Or the product placement. That's uh, what we got to do. It turns out, Ken, that I have I've come up with a new term for an old concept, but I think it was an, uh, an interesting one to uh, turn over, particularly in terms of uh, people who are uh, writing game material uh, for others, uh, whether you're doing that for your own game or whether you're doing it writing uh, freelance uh, or uh, putting something up on uh, one of the various community content platforms, a lot of on drive-through, and this is a, a key thing that I think uh, separates out different schools of uh, gaming and something that I want to see when I'm looking at somebody's uh, manuscript when they're writing for Gumshoe. I think most other traditional uh, games uh, require you to have this thing, and this thing is table sense. And Ken, you know the answer, but if you didn't, what would you speculate table sense to be? I might speculate the table sense is a sense of the things that are happening around the table. Exactly so. Um, and one thing that I've started to notice over the recent years is that there's a, uh, I think, a, a difference in approach to uh, whether people are, are steeped in uh, the trad gaming lane 
uh, that uh, we are in, although some people say that uh, Gumshoe is simple enough to be more of a story game. It's uh, certainly in terms of the player freedom and agency it provides you. It is within the broader tradition that begins with D&D and uh, goes out from there rather than uh, the story game structure, which often requires everybody to buy into a very particular structure of what you can and can't do in the course of a scenario. And uh, part of that is about creating a very specific aesthetic experience where we're going to sit down and we're going to play gray ranks or we're going to play dogs in the vineyard or we're going to whatever it is we're all agreeing to to act within the parameters of this uh, thing and so therefore the players are much more likely to agree to the assumptions that the designer and the scenario runner make about their choices and and they don't necessarily feel that they lack agency but rather they're agreeing to surrender creative control over what they're doing to uh, achieve a particular experience. Whereas in trad games, uh, even though there's uh, a core activity that everybody agrees to, within that, there's sort of an assumption that the players have much more leeway to do weird and surprising things. And so the whole, you know, maxim of every GM's plan survives until the players make contact with it right. is... Uh, what we're talking about here, that the players are, are often going to surprise you. You deliberately give them agency, so they're going to uh, use it. And even a really seasoned uh, game master can quite often be surprised uh, by what it is that the players uh, choose to do. And part of your job when you are designing something for uh, an existing game or even designing a new core game is to figure out the sorts of things that players will try to do sometimes not necessarily in accordance with your intentions. And so uh, if you decide to create a game where, well, there's just no violence in this game. And so the question you then have to ask is, what do you do when one of the players says, well, okay, but I punch somebody. Mm -hmm. um, and so that is a sort of an extreme example of how uh, you have to have some answer to uh, respond to things that people will will likely do. Um, on a less extreme note, uh, when you're creating a monster, it's like, well, can you envision how the players are going to interact with this monster? What are they going to do? How does this uh, come come to play into a, in a story? Um, and there are even more specific examples of the classic one being if you write, and then the bad guy escapes. <laughs> and, you know, if you have table sense, you know, well, the players aren't going to just sit there and go, oh, well, he escaped. They're going to come up with every possible thing uh, on their character sheets to prevent the villain from escaping during that scene. Exactly. And and, and not to hunt him down and create excitement uh, in a chase, but to uh, retroactively make him not have escaped in the first place because... Uh, they had the ring of containment up or whatever it happens to be. And again, this is, I, I think that some of the, the lines you're drawing between trad and story in this sense, they more apply, not so much because do characters have agency, characters still have agency within story games, they just have agency within a certain theme or within a certain uh, set of narrative constraints. The same thing is, it could be said of trad, it's just a trad player characters by tradition, hence the trad, often have a wide variety of impedimentia and abilities that are not immediately relevant to the story at hand. 
And and that's because story gaming is focused on the, the actual uh, story theme and, and story central concept. And so there's no reason that your boxer in contender should also be a mentalist. It would just be stupid and waste time and not have a point. But it's very possible in any other uh, more traditional game that your boxer also has mentalist powers because he just happened to roll really well on psionics or he was given a, a hat of mentalism that is still stuck to his head somehow or whatever happened. Uh, so individual characters respond almost regardless of whether they're a specialist or a, or a generic role in the party, they can respond with any number of possible special responses. And so it rapidly becomes difficult and all kudos to Dungeons and Dragons, which has barely managed to figure out how to do it. It has uh, become very difficult to write a properly constraining story in a game like that, because the characters have so many wild opportunities. It's as though Sherlock Holmes also had a ring of flight. I mean, there right. must be you, you, Doyle would just throw up his hands and say, that, all right, I, I give up. This is nonsense. Uh, right. And part of that is the distinction between uh, the often uh, one shot or uh, limited series uh, structure of story games. And part of it is in, and, and so conversely with campaign play in a, in a trad game, you know, if you go three sessions and don't use your mentalist powers, that's fine. Cause you think you're going to use them. Whereas in a story game, if you're a boxer, uh, with psionics, both of those things are going to come up in the one game that you run, and the game is going to be designed to uh, deal with all of those things. Uh, whereas uh, the trad thing is is more of a, here's a big bundle of parts, we're going to throw them out, we're going to see what people uh, do with them. And so when you are uh, designing a scenario, you need to uh, picture what's actually going to happen when it reaches the players. And uh, you will have to be prepared for the fact that different players are at the table for an assortment of reasons. And not all of those reasons are going to be about uh, fulfilling uh, the aesthetic aims of the narrative. And not all of them are going to be about problem solving. And some people will react differently on different nights. And so uh, now this is something that it's also a reason if you miss something with your table sense, which you always will, even as a seasoned designer, uh, that's what playtesting for scenarios is all about. Uh, so, for example, in one of the uh, later Gumshoe one-to-one adventures that is in um, Even Death Can Die, there is a, a scene where this big burly bouncer, if, if, the, if Dex Raymond does a particular thing, escorts him out of the bar. And there is no reason whatsoever for Dex to have a fight with the bouncer. <laughs> right. There's, if there's, if there's is a, a mystery novel, he would not have a fight with the bouncer. If this was a movie, he would not have the fight with the bouncer. He would look at the bouncer and go, I have no reason to fight with you. But guess what? At least one of the players really wanted to have a fight with the bouncer. Right. Now, it happens that Gumshoe One to One is actually borrows a technique from story gaming. And uh, in order to not throw you completely off track and force you to improvise in the tense experience of one-to-one -one play, it constrains uh, any test to three possible different narrative outcomes so that the option of you accidentally kill the bouncer and now <laughs> you're on the run from the, from the law for murdering the bouncer for no reason uh, doesn't come into play. But in a, a regular multiplayer game, uh, you have to be prepared for what happens if uh, one of the players, they just get bored and irritated or you play how annoying a character is too well. 
uh, and they lash out and decide to to go after them. Or, uh, you know, sometimes players just decide to be chaos agents. And uh, interestingly, uh, the um, more sort of progressively woker people who are make up a big part of the audience for story games uh, in a trad game are often the ones who are the first to set things on fire and start fights for no reason and uh, do all sorts of uh, uh, peculiar things that uh, this scenario writer may not have anticipated. And so not only are you, how are you, are you anticipating the possibility for, you know, just weird chaos to break out at, at any time, but in, in another sense, you know, uh, table sense comes into play when you're designing you know, a magic item or any, anything else. It's like, how is this actually going to be used? And so the question of, is this a good enough item? Does it give you enough of a bonus? Is it worth uh, having? Are they going to replace their regular weapon with this? Uh, is something that you should ask yourself when even designing crunchy bits? You know, is this spell, uh, can you imagine a player using up one of their spell slots for, for this new spell that you're creating? Uh, and if not, uh, make it better, you know, why, otherwise, why are you bothering? Yeah. And so that sort of begins to lead, uh, ineluctably into, uh, a thing that I always say, which is that when you're writing any sort of source material for gaming, you should be attempting to have every sentence or at the very least, every paragraph give you something actionable to do at the table as a, a GM or as a player, it should inform not just the world. It should not just be a world almanac. Oh, look at that. The average rainfall here is 12.2 centimeters. It should be something that will affect play where it says in May, the rains are so heavy in this town that uh, all the murders take place then because they know that no one can chase them or see them from a distance. And now that I've just said the same thing. I've said that there's heavy rainfall at one time a month, but now I've given it, a story justification, a thing that could uh, make something happen and play one way or the other. And so that is uh, just the, um, the table sense, if you will, how can this be used applied to, you know, scene description and, uh, and applied to background material and applied to, you know, details of a character species or, or whatever. Um, if it, if it can't make play fun or exciting, or at least visually interesting in the mind's eye, why is it there? Yes, the questions are, how would I use this? How would the GM use this? What What is fun about this? What? Why does this matter to the characters in the world? And uh, there are supplements that you can go through with a highlighter <laughs> and, <laughs> and highlight <laughs> all the things where that question is never posed and certainly never answered. That seems, that seems a lot harder than the other thing you could do, which is to highlight the times when it's accidentally posed or answered. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and you right. don't get ill from highlighter fumes. Yes. So it's like, here's an extensive description of uh, the things that happened 200 years ago in this setting. And then everyone forgot all of this, right? You <laughs> see that sometimes too. Oh my God. Yeah. And so always be asking yourself, how is this useful in play? Always picture yourself uh, using it in play and suggesting how it's used. And so that can help you cut out everything from just sort of vague, abstract bump which we've talked about before, like this monster is the most monstrous of all monsters. It is the most terrifying of, it's like, oh, no, how about describe a situation in which the characters encounter it and might be terrified by it, right? That it's about uh, making things concrete, making things actionable, as you say, 
Um, and the way to get table sense, Ken, is... Play a lot of games at the table. Play a lot of games at the table. That's how. And yes. that that is not just an issue with uh, people moving from story to trad, but also there's uh, you can see a lot of things written by devoted trad people who it's like, have you played this? Have you played recently? And uh, right. uh, because table sense <laughs> this, is something that atrophies. This seems, this seems like sort of a Fabergé egg. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that you can you can write something that... that uh, in your head will be brilliant and beautiful and wonderful. But if you've ever exposed something like that to a table, you know that it's going to end in fire and tears because that is how games operate. And you have to, uh, what what you make has to not be beautiful necessarily, although beauty is nice. What it has to be is robust. And if it's robust and usable, well, now that's why I'm replacing my old weapon with this new weapon. It's more robust. It's more usable. Look at all those great things. Same thing with uh, any sort of thing that you're designing. And I mean, you, you brought up monster descriptions and in a table sense way, you can think uh, when, when this monster hits the party, what is the inevitable thing people will try to do to destroy it? And then you can either answer that with, well, they'll do that and that will use up a spell slot. And that's what that monster's secret role is, is to be the lightning drinker. And then now no one has lightning bolt and they have to keep going through the dungeon or you can say, well, that seems like that's a very unsatisfying one hit kill solution. Can it at least come in different colors so that, you know, you have to pay a little bit of an attention or what will happen with this monster? If you think it's going to be a big dramatic fight and in some way it's not, or you think it's going to be interesting and fun and you realize that all the interest and fun can be short circuited in the first round if it ever hits the table. And that's, Really, uh, the table sense is, is not so much knowing your players, although that's helpful, uh, like it is for a GM. It's about knowing the persnickety goofiness and will to destruction of players. The, the will to be chaos agents, as you say, and right. then hoping to, uh, uh, ju- uh, Aikido that into actual play, right? Right. And it's not just though about avoiding possible pitfalls, whether those pitfalls are they, capture the villain who you thought would get away or uh, this magic axe that you thought was cool. They don't think is cool and they sell it at the next uh, town. Uh, But also you are creating uh, for the GM while they're reading material, the excitement and play that you are taking your table sense and writing it in such a way that they are imagining themselves playing this game with this cool thing that you've made up. So it's like, Oh wow. If, if uh, Ginny, uh, got this magic axe. I can imagine what she would do with this. And then she'd be really uh, totally into this because it would totally match her raven. This is great. And so you are trying to uh, not only avoid uh, things going wrong, but you're trying to engage the uh, imagination of, uh, of the GM or if it's player facing material of the players and making them want to show up for a game that week and do something cool with it. And uh, now that we've, uh, you know, talked about showing up, I think it's time for us to uh, duck out of this hut and uh, see what uh, exactly. w- what other hut might be waiting on the other side of this commercial. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet 
from Gumshoe Master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King Role-Playing Game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The Wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. It's time for that most commercial of huts, the, the hut that you can wear or uh, perhaps drink from a mug because it's time once again for T-shirt justification hut. And this, I have to say, we don't do a hut for every new shirt that we drop in the tpublic.com or Ken, it's tpublic.com slash Ken Robin uh, merch store because some of them don't seem to necessarily require it. And when I created the excuse me while I nap this out shirt, which if you've not beheld its glory is that slogan with a old uh, engraving of a cat sleeping in a slipper. I figured that this was one that, that's, that spoke for itself. But Ken, you and I were on a Zoom call, and you said yeah. that you can get a hut out of this. Now, I might, at the end... I did not have, say any such thing. I never said that. You, you Exactly. You said you had 15 minutes to do on this. this is the, the, uh, Apropos of nothing, part of my 15 minutes, by the way, part of my 15 minutes... This is what I think it was Kirk Douglas used to do to David Niven at parties. Do you know this story? No, go um, ahead. He would, fill he the would, space um, in uh, this there would be a, <laughs> Yes. No, there would be a big party of, you know, big Hollywood wing-a-ding and uh, drinks would be flowing and people would be getting all up in each other's business. And Kirk Douglas would stand up and with his manly air, command the room and he'd say, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, David Niven will now perform the napkin bit. And he would throw a napkin to David Niven and then stand back and look expectant. And of course, David Niven had no idea what the napkin bit was. I don't know if he kept doing that specific thing to David Niven, because I assume at some point then Niven would work up a napkin bit. But I always like to imagine being the first time David Niven has a napkin thrown to him by Kirk Douglas must now do the napkin bit. And I, I think that that's a, that's a beautiful story about Hollywood and, uh, and the nature of celebrity. Robin, what do you okay, think? Okay, well, that, oh, that's, right. uh, I think, three and a half minutes about cats in a slipper. Now, three and now a half the minutes? thing is, okay. Ken, there were witnesses. We were not right. the only ones in this Zoom meeting. And I'm sure if we ask Gar, if were the dialogue there? was, 
Ken says, we should do a t-shirt justification hunt. And Robin says, really? And can you do 15 minutes on this? And you saying, yes, I think Gar will attest to this. So now we can seriously talk about the role of napping and creativity, but I believe you have at least nine more minutes to talk about cats. Right. Well, cats is something I can absolutely do 15 minutes on. And since we are going to, for the moment, put a pin in whether or not coerced testimony from a parasitic wasp counts as testimony, (laughs) we can move forward. Uh, with the question of uh, cats, naps, and the nature of creative play. And I would like to begin with a quote from the uh, the great Neil Gaiman, who said, The hardest part of being a writer is convincing your spouse that lying on the couch is working. And I will say that Neil is not wrong. <laughs> that uh, even when one spouse pretends she agrees... Sometimes you suspect she does not actually agree. And, uh, I have had a, um, uh, I have had a cat now for 11 years. Sheila, uh, had a cat for a couple of years before that. And, uh, when we got Virgil, I, I was a responsible cat owner. I looked in a bunch of books about cats and, um, I learned that you can't say cat owner because that is a, um, malapropism at the very least. And I discovered in a book by, um, I want to say, uh, Noah Blatsky, that at, at one point, someone had done a study of cats, a behavioral study, and they said that cats spend uh, 30% of their time sleeping and 60% of their time resting. <laughs> and then everything else the cats do is the other 10%. And I was taken with the joyfulness, the joyful nature of that scientific discovery, and I shared it with my friends. And my friend Josh said... This explains why so many writers have cats. They're the only thing that makes a writer look busy, which, <laughs> while unkind, has a certain degree of truth to it. And and I feel like you can take naps without cats. I've taken naps without cats. But a nap you take with a cat is extra productive. And I speak as a writer. Robin, you do not have a cat. Do your nap situations, do you feel like if only you had 10 to 18 pounds of something warm and furry, uh, making uh, subliminal calm-down noises? Do you think that would help or hinder your napping goals? Sadly, in my case, having an allergy attack uh, would would not be conducive to napping. Would break up the nap big time. Yes, it would. Waking up to sneeze uh, does not uh, help your nap. But I I will certainly, uh, first of all, uh, Valerie even buys the argument that uh, taking naps is is essential. And uh, the nap, I have to say, is a big part of my creative process. I I uh, had a good 20-minuter uh, right before we started recording this, as I uh, always make sure to do in hopes of being, you know, quasi-alert for this nonsense. Um, and yes, I have an eight-hour nap before we do this. Well, it's very similar. Yeah, I think there's another term for an eight-hour one. And A good uh, nap, that's the term. A, a good solid nap. <laughs> right. But uh, anything that requires the uh, sort of focus and uh, intellectual acuity and these days imperviousness to distraction, he says laughingly of, uh, of a writer as uh, a work that your brain gets tired uh, just the way that your uh, legs would get tired if your uh, job is carting uh, stuff around. Uh, and uh, a, a nap is essential and a, th- a thing you have to talk yourself uh, out of feeling guilty about. And uh, if you're if you're lucky, you can have a nice sort of hypnagogic uh, nap, one of those nice 
uh, ones where you're sort of, uh, you're not dreaming, but there's imagery percolating up in your mind. Uh, Thomas Edison used to nap in order to get ideas because, of course, Thomas Edison uh, thought that a day that went by without him uh, pat patenting something or uh, putting his name on somebody else's invention was was a day wasted. Now, he's so, still patenting it, whether he invented it or not, Robin. Right. That's, that's amateur hour to, to do the inventing first. Yes. Uh, but he did invent a bunch of stuff. And he when did. he wanted to yes. invent things, he would nap in a chair uh, clutching a ball in his hand. And so uh, when he fell sufficiently asleep, that his hand relaxed and dropped the ball, that would then wake him up. And it was Thomas Edison's theory that this allowed you to be in exactly the right mental state, uh, just sort of approaching that hypnagogic moment and the, being pulled out of it, which was the thing that would then allow you to invent uh, an electric door opener or uh, a different form of motion picture camera or whatever it was uh, that he was trying to invent that day. And um, one thing I can never understand is people who who work for companies where you're expected to go to an office and write. I would, you know, I've I've never done that, but I would think you'd have to put a a don't hassle me for napping uh, and give me a couch in my office uh, policy to to get anything done. Yeah, it, it's it, it's odd to sort of try and adjust your your cycle to. Uh, first of all, it's odd to adjust your cycle to a workspace, regardless of whether you're a creative writer or, or just a, a, a normal kind of person, um, a, a blessed normal kind of person, um, because nobody's circadian rhythms link up. Even people who are generally diurnal are uh, some people are morning people. Some people only really get going in the afternoon. It must be impossible to try and sort that out. And as I did used to work in an office and believe me, I was barely able to uh, figure out what my productivity was, um, much less uh, a master it for my sleep schedule, which snapped right back to nocturnalism the instant it could. And the notion of any sort of work organizing to your personal best practices is is going to be tricky regardless. I think for writers, we actually, in a way, have it easier because everyone expects us to be, you know, sort of off kilter or not. Uh, or at the very least, um, taking a nap when we're, when people are trying to find us, it's, it's not as unusual as all that. I will point out, by the way, speaking of Thomas Edison, he apparently, uh, did a film of two kitties in a boxing ring, which is arguably the first cat video he did it in 1894. <laughs> um, and I want to say that he had a cat. I cannot find evidence to that effect, but I, recall reading about Thomas Edison a long time ago, and I'm pretty sure he had at least one and possibly many cats. So when Thomas Edison is is taking his naps and um, uh, developing his, his gravity system, I think he had the ball, he was playing with his cat, then he just nodded off. And when his assistant, as you say, ran into the office, he, he drops the ball, he says, ah, my napping system has worked. And uh, then being Thomas Edison, no one called his bluff. I think that's what you're dealing with there. Right. And if uh, Kevin Culp is listening to this, he's a uh, workplace safety uh, consultant. And, he, is, uh, he is a napologist. He is a napologist. He's an expert on, on napping. And I'm sure he's shouting all sorts of uh, actual useful information into uh, his, uh, his earphones at this point. Uh, but uh, one thing that I uh, do that is in accordance with his recommendations is I set a timer uh, to make sure that the nap is no more than 20 minutes. Uh, first of all, I uh, want to uh, make sure that I actually get up and, and do some work uh, with that 
with that nap that I got. And also you can badly throw off your uh, real sleep schedule and end up in one of those horrible, vicious cycles where you're napping constantly and never really falling asleep. Where you're, 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 you're going around the clock. And so you're, you're always in that sort of two hour nap window. That's, uh, that's called when Sheila leaves town, by the way, Robin, that's the scientific name <laughs> that's of that. that state. Yeah. But, uh, certainly of all the things that I wish, uh, you know, uh, tools that I had as a writer, if you could just have, have one that being able to, uh, fully control my sleep cycle and always fall immediately asleep at night and wake up refreshed, that would be the very best thing because, uh, uh, I can't tell a couple of weeks later whether something was written during an ideal day of wakefulness or a groggy uh, day after a, a troubled sleep, uh, but I can certainly tell while I'm doing it, and it's uh, it's not much fun to be in that uh, in that state. And uh, depending on you know how badly you slept the night before, uh, a a nap isn't always going to fix everything. Um, you also want to uh, caffeine is also a big double edged sword. The, the caffeine and the nap are enemies, and they're both uh, things where you can go over the line and tumble into disaster. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it is alleged, however, that a caffeine sleep, uh, a caffeine nap is more refreshing. Yeah. Uh, so supposedly if you uh, have a coffee and then a nap, uh, that the coffee will then wake you up after the nap and the, your, your brain will be uh, working. And sometimes that works for me. And sometimes it doesn't because uh, we're talking about sleep here, aren't we? I've, I've, I've read that uh, the way you do the coffee nap is that, and do not try this at home. We are not napologists is you drink a big cup of coffee right before you go to uh, bed for your nap or lie down on the couch for your nap. And then when the caffeine wakes you up, it's a better transition from being nappy and muzzy to being awake and alert. And I don't think that that's because the nap is any better. I just think the waking is more abrupt and full uh, because it's chemically induced. And so, you know, you, you're going to feel more alert and wired, but are you actually going to be more productive when you're, you know, just bounced out of bed by your, by your caffeine? Or are you more productive if you roll out of, uh, out, out of bed because your wife, uh, let's just have a random line of dialogue, something like, are you ever going to get up? It's almost dinner time or whatever it might be. Um, you know, the, 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 the job of the nap is not just to, sort of refresh you in terms of, oh, you missed sleep. If you've been missing sleep, you should be, you know, just sleeping longer. It's like you said, to sort of rewire your brain so that you're not thinking in a sort of uh, immediate plodding this foot in front of the other foot, sort of a logical way, but you're creating those hypnagogic connections such that when you wake up, you've, uh, you've sort of um, uh, thrown the ball uh, Edison style to your subconscious and uh, let it work out wild connections, which is what happens when you dream is your 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 memories are no longer being governed by anything. So they're firing randomly. Right. And one thing that's very tiring uh, is ta- task switching uh, and uh, also sort of the dumber and more automatic the task is, whether you're you know undergoing a number of steps to put a picture on a blog post or, you know, you're uh, putting something up on social media or you're. Uh, noting a bit of income that uh, came in on your uh, spreadsheet where you track your income. All of those things take up way more uh, mental energy than you would think, especially when opposed to the uh, the creative effort that is all about getting into a flow state. So uh, often I think that that's sort of a way of, uh, at the risk of comparing 
the brain to something on a computer, it is sort of you're your clearing your browser cache and getting all of the residual uh, uh, gunk out of your brain in order to then hopefully focus on your, your main task of the day. Yeah, the possibilities obviously are going to vary individual person, individual person. Every human being reacts differently to all kind of stimuli, or in this case, the deliberate absence of stimuli. So, you know, some people get happy and giddy on, on wine. Other people don't. Naps are going to work in, in one set of brains. They're going to kind of not work in another set of brains. What may be necessary is not a nap, but just, you know, stillness. You're, you're lying there and nothing is happening. And that gives you the ability to concentrate. And that, that I think is, is sort of like your, your Proust style writer, you know, who's got, you know, this, this voice inside them that they have to be very, very quiet and listen to and find out what's going on. Uh, a writer like me, of course, um, where the voice is mostly, you know, giving a lot of very unwelcome advice. It, it, it's really more about just sort of, you know, letting all the bits of, of stuff in your head just sort of bang against each other. Like we've been talking about, do you think that, um, different types of writing require different napping? And, uh, if so, do you suppose there is a sort of writing that is ideal for napping with a dog? instead of with the cat <laughs> well i'm i'm allergic to them too so i i can't, Robin, uh, can't really testify th- this is when when we have your when your autobiography comes out the pictures are not going to go viral with that kind of attitude <laughs> well that's just a warning to people never to read my autobiography which would be the most boring life story <laughs> like i can imagine uh even by the standards of writers it's like, oh, he <laughs> got up then he wrote another four scenes for six ages this was today wrote about uh, when the uh, w- 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 when the deer people show up and how they shook their antlers and he had trouble with one of the story branches. But I guess ultimately what, what we're trying to get toward is that as in so many other aspects of being alive as a human being, you're you're trapped in a body which is not always cooperating with you. And our uh, alertness cycles don't go in a 24 hour uh, pattern. It'd be awesome if. You were uh, could be sure that you were alert at a given hour every day and that you would stop being alert at a given hour the other day. It'd be awesome if you could stop thinking at night. I would really like that. That'd be mm-hmm. great. That'd be a yeah. help. Um, but uh, ultimately, if we're going to have some useful writing advice other than buy the awesomely cute T-shirt mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, be forgiving of yourself when your uh, brain doesn't cooperate because there's so many other possible things that we don't even understand that can go into why you are uh, alert and on the ball one day and uh, kind of groggy the other. And and part of that is I think we're also not on a seven day cycle or we're not, uh, our brains don't work five days on two days off that uh, some days are just going to be a long walk uphill and others are going to be days of inspiration. You can manage that a bit with coffee and naps and other things. Uh, but ultimately uh, uh, self forgiveness as hard as that is to uh, achieve on a day when you're not being productive is uh, is the ultimate reason to reward yourself with, did I dare mention, an extremely cute shirt. And the other reason would be if you have a cat. Uh, and on that note, let's see what's in the upcoming hut. The best of Askfageln is now available at Drive Through RPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through Keep this podcast from its final nap by throwing in with such stalwart Patreon backers as... Scott Jones. Craig Maloney. Brian Thomas. Bill Sirwan. And Andrea Coletta. The great ladies in their lorgnettes, the gentlemen in their top hats, the hushed sound before the proscenium, the flash of an arc light lets us know we're in a very classy version of the Culture Hut, Robin. And today in the Culture Hut, the curtain is being drawn back. The stage is somewhere in Paris in the 18... Oh, Robin, this is another Yellow King thing, isn't it? Thank goodness, because we love those things. Uh, this, however, on stage is... A lady, a billowing white satin dress, and a lot of colored gel light, because we are talking about Louis Fuller, who, among other things, invented the skirt dance. Uh, and do you, Robin, I certainly hope, since you put her into Yellow King, have more than just that evocative-sounding art form to guide us to the great Loie Fuller. She's a, a great example of a character that your uh, Yellow King uh, Paris art students can interact with. And uh, she's perfect in uh, a number of ways. Uh, for one thing, uh, she is an American. In fact, she's from Illinois. She's from Fullersburg, Illinois. And uh, she, now Hinsdale. she begins uh, her career uh, in American uh, vaudeville and circus. And at one point works with uh, Buffalo Bill Cody. And so uh, she goes basically from uh, the circus to being a precursor of Martha Graham and other uh, modern uh, dance artists. And not only that, but she invents a whole bunch of parts of modern stage lighting. And speaking of patents, uh, patents a bunch of them. And she was known for, uh, she would perform in or sometimes choreograph other performers in these uh, stage spectacles uh, during the height of her uh, fame. Uh, she performed at the Folie Bergère, so it was big, big deal kind of stuff. Um, her first uh, dance was uh, known as the Serpentine Dance, and uh, she has a, a big flowing silk costume that various colored lights are projected onto, so that the as this great billowing uh, dress uh, moves all around her, uh, you uh, see it seem to change colors, and it has this interesting hypnotic effect. Um, and uh, therefore, she is considered to be the uh, the favored modern dancer of the symbolist movement. And there is a film of the Serpentine Dance. It's not her performing it, but this was done by the Lumiere brothers in uh, early color. Uh, and I don't know whether Ooh. this was hand tinted. It must have been hand tinted because it's very Almost early. Would have had to have been. But the whole point was to replicate what you would see if you saw her, her stage show. Uh, she was nicknamed the Electric Salome. 
which is reason enough to put her in your game. It's a great her name. other dances were uh, or, or others of her dances were the dance of fire and the uh, dance of the butterfly. Uh, and uh, in that one, she the dress sort of keeps folding and unfolding. And then finally, she turns out to be the uh, the pistol of a flower. And uh, she uh, not only uh, invented or refined uh, theatrical gels. These are the, it's the transparency in different colors that you shine a light through to uh, create different colored lights. Uh, but she also invented a luminescent fabric paint, uh, which uh, sounds uh, groovy and exciting. And uh, because she was a big artistic star in Paris in this era, she is friends with a lot of other uh, people who are uh, profiled briefly in the Yellow King Paris book. So she was friends with uh, Marie Curie, with uh, Rodin, with uh, the uh, symbolist uh, precursor of the surrealist poet uh, Stéphane Mallarmé, uh, Camille Flammarion, the uh, science fiction writer and astronomer who we've done a previous segment on, was also a friend of hers. And she was a member of the French Astronomical Society. So she uh, is a fascinating figure in that she combines uh, both the artistic ferment of that period and the scientific uh, advancement. She appears as the subject of a Toulouse-Lautrec poster. Uh, there are other very famous, beautiful posters that you can uh, grab on the internet and throw up for your players when uh, when she appears. So you can have her see the uh, they can see that her uh, posters and then meet her. Uh, Jean-Léon Jerome is another friend of hers, and he is probably the art tutor of the player characters in the game. So that's another way that they can meet her. And uh, she was a, a fixture of the Parisian uh, lesbian scene uh, in this era. She has a number of paramours, including uh, uh, someone who is also allegedly linked to uh, Sarah Bernhardt. So you might have some fun love triangle action there. Later on, uh, she partners uh, with a, a baker and she favors very dapper uh, men's style tailored clothing and they uh, live happily for uh, many decades together. So if you're looking for representation, this is not a, a, a tragic uh, lesbian story, but a happy one. So that's uh, all yeah. the better. She, she dies at age 65 in Paris, surrounded by friends and artistic accomplishment. Uh, yeah. So that's, uh, that's, that's a, she gets a pretty good uh, run. Uh, she's in her, she's 33 in 1895. So that's, uh, uh, she's got a good long life ahead of her, especially after you, you know, save her from the Carcosans who are attempting to, uh, use her, uh, lighting to turn everything yellow or, or whatever it is. Uh, she mentored, uh, Isadora Duncan. So she, uh, ushered in, uh, she's part of a, a line of modern dance that, uh, continues on, uh, past her. And uh, her dancers were called the Fullerettes. Uh, she had kept a company uh, touring in America, even though she was mostly in, in Paris. So you, could, you couldn't see Loie Fuller in America very often, but you could go see the Fullerettes. And she's uh, not a household name by, by any means, but, uh, but should be. And accordingly, uh, Taylor Swift agreed with me on that. And she, she incorporated a tribute to Loie Fuller in her uh, 2018 tour and recreated the serpentine dance. So there's uh, any number of, of possible Loey Fuller connections. She was buddies with Queen Marie of Romania. Uh, I believe that their friendship begins in World War I, though, so it's a little late for you, but you can always imply that it happened earlier and that they just fell back into uh, friendship. And if uh, Marie of Romania's state visit to Paris involved 
I don't know, vampires? Maybe that's why Maria of Romania tries to keep things on the DL um, uh, when she's buddies with, with, with Loie Fuller. Uh, Loie Fuller was in Paris when Chambers was. She arrives in Paris in 1891. Chambers does not leave until 1893. And when in uh, the story, The Yellow Sign, Tessie says, uh, we saw Kelly and Baby Barnes, the skirt dancer, and all the rest talking to her paramour. The skirt dancer, uh, that's the art form that Louis Fuller, at the very least, pioneered, if not actually invented. And she may have invented it. I don't know. And... The well, notion, she certainly got ripped off by other by other uh, skirt dancers by other yeah. skirt dancers, right? Um, and remember, you might have a uh, an image of this being uh, uh, you know sort of racy from the term skirt dance, but really it's voluminous sculptural uh, dress yeah. dance would be a, yeah, a right. less catchy name for it. Um, mm-hmm. so, so it's much more of a a, a modern art uh, thing than anything sort of uh, uh, racy. And one of the things that you know, people remark about her is that her dance was not about uh, uh, the male gaze, right? That it was mm-hmm. about uh, her uh, creating uh, shapes and forms uh, and uh, and colors. She, in fact, attempted to uh, patent uh, the serpentine dance, but it turns out you can't patent dances. And so it was a, a matter of uh, some bitterness to her that other people uh, completely ripped off her entire act. Yeah. And uh, again, if you've gone to all the trouble that she had to figure out lights and colors and paints and fabrics, you could imagine that she would be a little bit uh, perturbed by that. Um, and, and again, it's in Paris in 1891 that she says uh, there's a lot of conflicting versions of when she invented the serpentine dance, but it was around then. Oh no, I'm sorry. It was in America in 1891 that she invented the serpent, da- the, the, the serpentine dance and then brought it to Paris in 1892. I was, a, I was a year yeah, off. Yeah. Cause she was mad about not being able to patent it. So she went to Paris as we all do when we fail an intellectual rights dispute. Yes. And, 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 and off we go to Paris to, to, um, dance our sins away. And, uh, so she again overlaps with, uh, chambers. And as you said, she moves in the same artistic circles that he was moving in. So it's not impossible that, uh, Louis Fuller and, uh, uh, Robert Chambers at the very least have a nodding acquaintance, like across a crowded room where he is a boring, unimportant art student and she is a amazing American. I, I, do, do you know if with Buffalo Bill, she was just riding and roping, or did she shoot things? Because I have an image of Loie Fuller uh, not being rescued by the party, but rescuing the party like this, like a Batman cape level of of dress shows up, and from a fold, a, a cleverly concealed pocket, she pulls out a, a, a Colt Navy revolver and just blows away some uh, Carcosan entity and says, there's not time. You have to follow me now. And, uh, and, and she becomes sort of the, uh, the, the enigmatical, um, uh, uh, anti-Carcosan action heroine, uh, that your, your, your characters then must find out what happened and why she retired or, or, or some, uh, something like that, or can give them, you know, things to do while she's off, uh, dancing. I did not succeed in turning up, uh, a lot of detail about the, uh, Buffalo Bill connection. But I don't think that we need to worry about that in order to have her say, I, I, uh, my impression was that she's, was doing her, her usual thing as, you know, part of a panoply of acts, uh, and rather than that she was being Annie Oakley. But of course she can always pull out a gun and say, as yeah, you point out, she is from America. Buffalo so. Bill showed me how to use this thing. Let me show you. The, the other thing that obviously, if, if you want to dip away from Yellow King and into a more Cthulhu area, if someone is doing a, 
series of mysterious, evocative, hypnotic dances called the Serpentine Dance. That's sort of a tell, as we say in the business. And she does live in Paris until 1928. So she's in the very sort of tail end uh, or the very uh, early beginning of um, uh, of Trail. But uh, right there in the middle of uh, of the beginning of Dreamhounds, at least, and could also be in your standard old 20s uh, Cthulhu game uh, if you are in Paris. And she's, you know, she, she's retired from all that vampire and, and monster hunting that she did back in the 1890s uh, when her legs were good. But now one last time she'll she'll armor up and, and, and show the players, uh, the player characters, the investigators uh, what she learned about uh, the, the serpents uh, by copying their mysterious uh, and ethereal dances. And at the end, you can have some uh, pastries or uh, buns uh, baked by uh, her partner. There you go. Uh, well, uh, now that we're having a snack, I think it's time for us to uh, uh, pause for a moment and then plunge on through to the final segment. What are swords without sorceries? Nada. What are sorceries without swords? Bopkiss. Thank goodness, then, for Arc Dream Publishing's Shane Ivey. Award-winning co-author of Delta Green, the role-playing game? Exactly that, Shane Ivey, who brings a haunted world alive for 5th edition fantasy with swords and sorceries. Explore crumbling civilization separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome dad. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons so that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send our hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And ripples in the time stream, being what they are, I sort of could swear that we've done this before, but a search of the uh, uh, Ken and Robin site tells us that we've talked about Harry Houdini before uh, in a consulting occultist segment in which we talked about his uh, occult-busting ways. But I, it turns out we've never actually had you uh, save him uh, and prolong his life uh, yet. Uh, so uh, that's exactly what uh, beloved Patreon backer Ed Sizemore uh, wants us to do. As he poses the question, what happens if Houdini had lived long enough to complete the cancer of superstition with Lovecraft and even do a book tour? Ken, how would that uh, time stream look? Well, in all fairness, it would probably look a lot like our time stream. Houdini, at the time of his death in 1926, at the hands of, and Robin, it pains me to say this, a Canadian jerk from British Columbia. Oh, a uh, British Columbian jerk. Yes, we've yes, heard of those. Absolutely. He was uh, famously uh, backstage after another thrilling performance in Montreal. A McGill University student goes up to him, has heard that 
Houdini can take any punch thanks to his supreme physical conditioning and without saying, Hey, Houdini, let me punch you so that Houdini can get ready. Just sort of up and punches him and the sucker punch heard around the world. Exactly. And it gives him while he's lying down on the couch, by the way, resting his broken ankle. So total jerk punches the guy punches Houdini, the guy. Um, and that probably either gives him appendicitis, bursting his appendix or peritonitis. And either way, uh, Houdini dies in Detroit on Halloween of con- complications arising from that Canadian punch, that backstabbing low Canadian punch, I should say. But of course, um, Houdini was primarily a stage entertainer. Uh, he was in movies. He did a lot of other stuff. Uh, he battled spiritualists around the world, mostly because he felt that he had to work uh, for his effects and they got to uh, lie and do a lot of other nonsense. And, uh, and they were swindlers with, and they were swindlers. He was against swindlers. And then, so he did all those things, but all of that is connected to his gigantic celebrity status as a stage performer of magical illusions. And in the same way that it almost kind of doesn't matter what else Kanye gets up to. He's always Kanye, the entertainer, you know, you know, he, that's going to be the, the, the big thing about Kanye. Same deal with Harry Houdini. He's, he's the Kanye of the twenties in that he's out there. He's, he's being interviewed. He's given all kinds of, of story, but fundamentally it's about the art and Houdini's art is one that is perhaps not as popular now as it was then, because we are by and large, not going to stage shows as much as we used to in the twenties. So I think that if he lives a, a longer life, another 20 years of his career, It'll just be another 20 years of a great stage magician. And maybe with the, the, the final Houdini story, instead of the weird one of, of a mysterious death on Halloween, uh, the last story will be, he tries some thing on stage and, and can't do it or, or God forbid dies during the milk can escape at age 68 or something like that. And that would be the end of Houdini. But it, in terms of giant changes, the time stream, not a lot, unless Robin, and I knew you were going to, uh, you were going to wait for I'm this. I'm glad you jumped in there before unless, I had to try and make this interesting. Oh, first of all, Houdini is interesting by himself. Yeah. Unless you believe William Kalish and Larry Sloman, whose book, The Secret Life of Houdini, maintains that Houdini was murdered by spiritualists in the pay of the hated British. I... <laughs> Cannot stress how much I love this book and how little credence you should give to anything <laughs> in it. it. It mentions H.P. Lovecraft twice in the course of the book, and one of those mentions is demonstrably incorrect. So there you go, a 50% hit rate on facts in that book. And that was uh, cherry-picked, quite frankly. So the thesis is that Houdini's death causes the global a wave of nonsense that we are still suffering from today. And that if Houdini had just lived longer and broken the spirit of Arthur Conan Doyle and his hated British ilk, that we would have entered the, the sunny uplands of a new rational era. Um, if you believe that you will believe anything. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of things, not to give credence to uh, a lasting wave of rationalism. Exactly. Um, and so uh, the, the, the reason that uh, Lovecraft comes into it at all is that Houdini either has a ownership stake or is good friends with uh, the publisher of Walter Hannenberger, the publisher of weird tales and agrees to uh, recount uh, some uh, first person adventures, which will be ghost written by other writers. 
And one of those writers is H.P. Lovecraft. They get, they get along. Houdini loves the story, which becomes imprisoned with the pharaohs and then under the pyramids now. Houdini loves it. They meet. Houdini tries to get Lovecraft a job. I don't know how hard he tried, but again, Houdini being a guy who is not super wired into the literary scene of the world, he could only do so much. And he was a busy man. He was escaping from milk cans and fighting spiritualists. So many people, maybe not better people than Houdini, but many people worked very hard to try and get Lovecraft jobs. All of them failed, may not have been Houdini's fault. I'm just saying that. And then they got together in Providence on the, in the, um, last year of the, uh, of his life in 1926. Weirdly, Houdini's wife suffered food poisoning at that banquet. That was an odd thing. That may have happened in 1925. The dates are jambled up. I'm getting 1926 from Kalish and Sloman. So, you know, there you go. And at some point during that process, uh, uh, Lovecraft says Houdini approaches uh, Lovecraft and uh, CM Eddie, Lovecraft's uh, friend and occasional writing partner, to write a book called The Cancer of Superstition, which will blow the lid off superstition and uh, witchcraft and rackets of that ilk in general. And uh, CM Eddie, as I don't know if I've mentioned on this show, uh, was also one of Houdini's advanced men who would go in and find out stuff about spiritualists in the area so that when Houdini came to town, he could show up and, and ruin all their spiritualist games by revealing them just uh, rapid fire. So the notion that uh, Houdini is uh, the, the, the sort of the center of this web of operatives who go and uh, investigate spiritualists is true. Um, and CM Eddie was one of them. And so Eddie and Lovecraft collaborated on a work called uh, to be called the cancer of superstition and whether or not it would be Lovecraft writes the outline Houdini provides a lot of research material from his own uh, uh, broad, though perhaps not discriminating reading and study. And then Eddie bangs out the hard part or whether Lovecraft and Eddie uh, working together banged out the hard part is the question because the 31 pages of the manuscript of Cancer of Superstition were discovered in uh, a magic shop uh, that closed down. They were sold at auction in Chicago uh, for uh, $30,000 thereabouts uh, in, in 2016. And questions immediately arose such as, did Lovecraft write it or did Eddie write it? Because if Eddie wrote it, his estate is still alive. His descendants are still around. They are litigious and they wanted the manuscript and other people said, no, that's not going to happen. And Lovecraft wrote it anyway. So there's a big whoop de do about it. Um, we do have what looks like the lengthy introduction or the outline of a lengthy introduction, sort of a supernatural horror and literature length essay. Uh, we have the outline and, and some of that in Lovecraft's papers. Uh, this would be longer than that, but not long enough to make a, a, a the really big full book that I think uh, people and certainly Houdini uh, were thinking of. So at the, at the most, I think we have the first draft of a first cut at some of the work without a lot of the Houdini material that would have been added in. And so the authorship question is wide open. And the question of if you assume that Lovecraft and Eddie finish the book and it's thick enough to uh, leave a mark, uh, then what you have is a global celebrity hawking a book that says um, all superstition is caused by primitive mindsets. And if you don't want to be primitive, you won't believe in superstitions. And if you are familiar with H.P. Lovecraft's anthropology, you will be familiar with that argument. Um, and uh, you will also be familiar with why that argument is not going to fly uh, very much out of the 1930s. And even in the 30s, you can imagine a very mean letter by Franz Boas 
about this book if it ever came out, uh, for example, uh, contradicting it on every particular. So it's, uh, it would not have done anything except maybe been a, a brief nine days wonder. It would obviously have paid Lovecraft some money, but it would have would got it have... sold at, at the merch table at Houdini shows. Exactly. And then so perhaps with that, Lovecraft might have tried to sell more of his nonfiction. Uh, obviously anyone who's ever read his travel. Uh, uh, writing knows that that's one of the areas that he, he, he was truly, uh, uh, happy writing in. He had a very, uh, uh, great architectural eye. His description of Quebec, his description of Charleston, a lot of the other travel writing. You can imagine a world in which if Lovecraft can be hooked up by one of his lefty friends, maybe he gets a WPA contract to write travel books in the thirties. And that's sort of because, oh, he wrote Cancer of Superstition back in the day. That was very progressive for 19. 19- 26 let's let's throw him the you know architectural guide to newport rhode island or something and and off he goes so maybe he starves to death later or the the cancer develops maybe a little bit later so the end result is possibly lovecraft lives a couple years longer but the extra lovecraft work we get is going to be uh travelogues and architectural writing not more cool Cthulhu stories. And in fact, we might even get fewer cool Cthulhu stories because if he's got a choice between banging out mountains of madness for as far as he can tell no market or writing up the architecture of Newport for the federal government, he's probably going to go with B not a. So we maybe get less Lovecraft fiction out of this uh, change point, but we do save Houdini from nefarious Canada slash Britain slash spiritualists. So that's good. (laughs) Uh, Well, and, uh, you know, you never know what sort of revenge the spiritualists might uh, cook up on, on Lovecraft uh, after uh, they fail to get Houdini. You mean cause him a mysterious illness as though he was struck in the midsection by a occult blow? Robin? Something like that? Yeah, That's something like that. Do. They might do that. So it, it seems like there's there's just no, uh, apart from, you know, wanting uh, Houdini not to be punched and killed. Yes. Uh, this seems like one of the 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 less fertile uh, time streams that you've uh, uh, considered creating. I mean, the Newport book is good. I, I can't say it won't be good, but I just, people, I think, and, and there's no so, monsters the, in there that people can write stat blocks for. Right. Given the, given the, well, there's spiritualist ectoplasm monsters. Right. But not in the Newport book, not in Newport. No, not in that one. Um, <laughs> they're just all around us. And um, I mean, be, people look at Houdini and, and I think rightly so as, such a towering figure in his own world that you sort of make the assumption, obviously that must translate to something else. But Houdini was buddies with Teddy Roosevelt and it's not like Teddy Roosevelt did anything about it. Uh, He he certainly didn't have, you know, a a, a ministerial office of escapology. If anything, um, there was less magical involvement in Roosevelt's administration than there was in uh, the McKinley administration, not to put too fine a point on it. And so the, uh, the, the the question of what kind of impact does Houdini have on, you know, uh, broader historical trends is pretty minimal. Uh, the impact of would more Houdini have been a good thing? Obviously, yes, because Houdini was was a was a was a great, 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 great escapologist and illusionist and also apparently a pretty stand up guy. I mean, uh, was faithful to his wife, uh, loved his parents and uh, hated uh, the hated British. So nothing wrong with that. Uh, did he hate the British or just the British spiritualists? He hated the British spiritualists, but you and I both know what that means. <laughs> and of course, uh, we know that in our time stream, uh, many people, uh, including other magicians, uh, go on to write 
lucid arguments uh, against spiritualist uh, swindlers uh, from a more enlightened, socially enlightened point of view. And of course, that ends all belief in loopiness and uh, people stop uh, being superstitious and falling for uh, various uh, new agey uh, swindles and none of that ever happens. So Right. I mean, Penn Jillette has, has uh, had like three television shows debunking nonsense and they've worked a treat. You can tell that no one believes nonsense now. Yes, the nonsense quotient is perfectly uh, contained. We, we do have uh, another uh, crossover, if, you, if we have time for it, between Houdini and another great uh, author of the weird, uh, William Hope Hodgson. Uh, because William Hope Hodgson ran a school of physical culture at Blackburn. When Houdini toured Blackburn in England again, I'll point out, he used to do handcuff escapes. And Hodgson was like, oh yeah, you can escape from those handcuffs, but can you escape from my handcuffs? And Houdini argued that Hodgson had basically soldered the locks shut so they could not be picked because Hodgson saying, hey, this is about escapology, not lock picking. <laughs> Hodgson said, no, Houdini's just not any good at escaping real locks. Uh, and it became a, a nine days wonder in the papers. And, uh, you know, you ask, did Houdini hate the British? He was not fond of Blackburn, England. I will tell you that he regularly uh, would refer to. Uh, the, 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 the perfidious nature of the Blackburn, uh, cops and authorities, uh, involved in the, his handcuff escape in 1902. So that's a thing. Uh, well, with, with that little addenda, we've brought in Hodgson. Uh, and I think at this point, uh, it's time that we made our own escape, uh, from this podcast, but we'll be back, uh, to, uh, leap out of a, a large milk tin, uh, next week with, uh, more nonsense like this. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by Jim Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Help this podcast escape shackled, watery death by joining such backers as... Derek McMullen. Jacob Borsma. Mike Merles. Rich Ranallo. And Ryan Mannix. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include the previously mentioned Excuse Me While I Nap This Out. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.